God's word this morning is going to come to us from Nehemiah and also from uh, the Gospel of John. So uh, we're going to continue our sermon series on uh, rebuilding. And if, uh, if you're wondering if, we're ne- if it's over or if it isn't over yet, why it's not over yet, uh, we're nearly there. Three more sermons looking at rebuilding. And the reason we're looking at three more sermons is because when Nehemiah comes to the end of his uh, book and the end of his the project, the mission that God had called, for, called him to do, uh, he had three final reforms for the people of Israel. Rest, purity, and first fruits. And so we're going to look at those three things in the coming weeks and as we finish up this sermon series. So this morning we'll be looking at rest. God's word from Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to read verses 15 through 22. And remember that. The Israelites have rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. They've settled into this new place. But as I've said in this series, that God's, uh, God's purpose and God's plan was not to rebuild a number of buildings, but to draw his people deeper into relationship with him. So this is what Nehemiah says. In those days, I saw the people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing grain and loading it in on donkeys, together with wines, grape, wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing it into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing all kinds of fish and other kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing that you're doing desecrating the Sabbath day? Did your ancestors do the same thing? So that did, did not your ancestors do the same thing? So that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city. He's talking about the exile. Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I, Nehemiah, ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers and all kinds of goods spent the night outside of Jerusalem. But I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and to go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. So far, the reading of God's word. In our day and age, we might well ask, why does Nehemiah get so upset about the Sabbath? So, so upset that he's barring the gates, keeping people out who would otherwise be selling, that he's uh, threatening to arrest people who are buying and selling on the Sabbath. God's people might remind us of the kind of uh, what I've heard called blue laws, laws that cities used to have about everything from uh, keeping stores closed to not allowed to mow your lawn on the Sunday. Why does Nehemiah get so upset about the Sabbath? Well, in a word, the answer is idolatry. If you remember last week when I told us the story of God and his love for his people, the story of the gospel, we started with God creating man and woman in his image. And from the beginning, we, said, we know, if we know the story, 
And from the beginning, God rested. God created Adam and Eve and all of humanity to be like him and to be image bearers of him. So he created us to live as he lives, to rest as he rested. Why, do we, why don't we then? Why don't we rest on the Sabbath? What is it about so many of us, uh, the Israelites included, that we just can't help ourselves? There's a little more work to do. There's a couple tasks that I have to finish. There's more, uh, more, than, more that I need to do than can be accomplished in a week. Why don't you rest? Well, perhaps we have an overinflated view of ourselves. We think too much of ourselves. It's another way of talking about idolatry, I think, isn't it? We tend to, in our society today, we tend to measure our value by our accomplishments. There's a lot of social pressure as well to prove ourselves, to work hard, to earn what we have, to not take advantage of others. But this idea of measuring ourselves and, and deciding how much, we were, how much we're worth based on our accomplishments is a kind of idolatry. Because scripture tells us as Christians that that people's worth, not just Christian's worth, but all people's worth doesn't come from what we do, but rather comes from the image of God that we bear. So we don't need to prove ourselves to him. Perhaps we don't rest because in all seriousness, we don't know how. We claim, many of us, that we don't have the time. That you can sleep when you're dead, I've heard someone say. I've probably said it myself. Our culture tells us to be busy and holds up busyness as a kind of value or uh, an ideal that we should aim at. And so often we go from uh, being busy in our work or busy in our homes to a vacation where we're just busy in another place and busy with different people. And then we come home from our vacation and we say, oh, I need a rest. Why don't we rest? Rest at its core is, Scripture tells us, is connection with God. And a big part of, I think, why we don't rest is that idolatry that hides in every human heart. That, that suggests that we need to be self-made people. That we need to find our own way. The rebellion that says, no, I don't need to depend on God. I don't need to connect with him. I will make a name for myself. Scripture tells us that rest is connection with God. And Jesus clarifies this in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Jesus says this. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Just, we're just going to go with Jesus as he works out this analogy a little bit here. My father, the gardener, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, he cuts it back so that it will be even more fruitful. You, Jesus talking to his disciples, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I also will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, right? We are the branch, Jesus is the vine. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you can remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, I, uh, over the last number of years, made friends with a guy who is a vintner. He's uh, not just a winemaker, but grows the grapes, harvests the grapes, presses the grapes, makes the wine, sells the wine, the whole deal. And I learned a lot from him, actually, just out of interest about the, all the different stages and steps of the process if you're growing grapes for, for gardening and, and for wine. Just to remind you, this is the image that Jesus is using here in John 15. Jesus says, I'm the vine. You, we, God's people, are the branches. And branches need to be pruned. I learned from my vintner friend, Daniel, that branches need to be pruned because if they're not pruned, they're just going to put out a little bit of energy all year long. And the fruit, the next season that you're going to get is sort of semi-sweet, semi-sour. They're going to be tiny little shriveled grapes, not good for much of anything. But if you prune back your vineyard, then the, the, all, the, all the energy is stored up and saved such that when they start growing again in the spring, not only does the vine grow back, but then it produces these plump and delicious, wonderful, uh, tasty grapes that are not just good for eating, but good for pressing and making into wine. Now, that's one thing uh, when we're talking about grapes and wine, right? This is a, I'll show you a picture of a vineyard that we're used to seeing, uh, but that is... Not a pretty picture. That's a pretty ruthless prune, I would say. But that's what's necessary. For, and, if, and vintners, people who grow grapes, know that cutting back, pruning your vines, you're pruning them all the way back almost to the vine. You can see there the big piece that's the vine, and it's those little stubs at the end that are the branches. They've been pruned back almost beyond recognition. That's bad enough, right? If we're talking grapes and, and vineyards. But this is the picture that Jesus is using for us as people, right? This is how far he's saying we have need to prune back to, to cease from our fruit producing and to remain in him. That's a ruthless way of living our lives. Especially given that it's more popular, far more popular in our day to be busy doing good, doing justice even, than it is to rest in the vine. I think when I, when I talk with people at River Park and in our neighborhood, more and more I'm realizing that I, I have to convince very few people of the importance of doing justice in our world. We, we seem to understand and know and internalize that importance of doing the work that God calls us to do. And maybe we don't always agree on what that work is or how we do it. But we don't need to be convinced that God calls us to lives of active service and obedience. It's much harder to, to convince us, to convince you that, that rest is important. That, to, to put it the way Scripture puts it, that we actually can't bear fruit apart from resting in God. That we can't do justice apart from abiding in God. Why is that? 
Well, we've talked about rest as sort of a, a, the, the, the antidote for, inju- for, excuse me, for idolatry, right? If we're trying so hard to prove ourselves, then rest is the antidote for that. Rest keeps us from the idol of self and reminds us to focus on God. But Andy Stanley reminds us that, in, that idolatry and injustice go together. And the glory of God and the service, the, the lives of God's people of rest and service are the response for both of those. Andy Stanley has a book uh, called Playing God, where he talks about power and the rede- redemption of power. And in that book, he tells a story of accompanying Jaya Kumar Christian, the director of World Vision India, to a town in South India where child slavery was rampant. And the story goes, or the situation goes something like this. A family that's struggling to make ends, neat, ends meet uh, is approached by someone who has a stacks of cash, is almost, almost a godlike amount of money. And that person's willing to give them just a few bills off the top to help them make ends meet, to help them pay what needs to be paid and, and buy the things that they want to buy in exchange for a significant amount of interest. And so they take the money, they spend it because they need it or because they want to. And then somebody comes knocking on the door a few days, a few weeks, a month later and says, well, now not only is it due what you, what you borrowed, but, but 20% more or even more than that. And what they couldn't afford at first now very quickly becomes an insurmountable amount of debt and owing until the big guy sticks his head in the door and says, look, there's that child sitting there on the bed. She's not contributing much to the family yet these days. Maybe she can come to work for us and we'll consider that debt to start to be paid off. Jaya Kumar summarized that situation in South India this way. He said, the poor are very poor because someone is trying to play God in their lives. The poor are very poor because someone is trying to play God in their lives. Jai Kumar reminds us that idolatry, trying to be God, and injustice, oppressing other people, goes together. That in playing God, we ruin the image-bearing ability, not just of the other person, but also of ourselves. The image-bearing, not just of one person, but of two Now, injustice, what does this have to do with rest? Well, we see this kind of injustice, and I use a significant example, I think. And maybe that's a bigger example than what we normally see in our lives. But when we see this kind of injustice in our world, we rightly, I think, want to reach out and, and stop it, right? And say, this shouldn't happen. This shouldn't be the way that it is. And so what do we do? In that kind of situation, our gut reaction is usually to send a bunch of money overseas. In other words, the temptation is just to become a benevolent kind of God, right? To take over power from somebody bad and to hold on as, as we think of ourselves as being good people. So we'll hold on to the power and we'll help these people out. But this still robs people of the image of God and of relationship with the one true God. 
It just creates a whole different kind of dependency. To put it a different way, apart from God, our work for justice only ever serves to reinforce our power, our position, and our preferences. Reconnecting with God and rest reminds us that we need to be changed as well. That it's not enough just to do the good that we think we ought to be doing in the world and help out all those other people, that actually I need to be transformed as well. That it's not just the lives of those people out there who need to receive something from me, but it's all of us who need to be connected to the vine. It's all of us who have life only when we are connected to God. And apart from God, that we're good for nothing. We might as well be cut off and thrown and thrown into the fire and burned. Both the work of justice and the work of resting and abiding in God have as their goal God's glory. Doing justice work and resting helps us to reorder the world to the way it's supposed to be. And we can't reorder the world to the way it's supposed to be until we have begun to reorder our own lives and order ourselves in the way that God has called us to be in right relationship with him and with others. So here we stand toward the end in some ways of a sermon series, but at the start of a new season, a season of summer, right? A season of rest. Probably many of us, if not most of us, already have our vacations booked. We're getting excited to go out of town, to go internationally and visit family, to do any number of things that take us away from the regular work and the regular uh, work for, for uh, employment, but also the work for justice that God has called us to as a church. It's a season where we step into something else. And so as we sort of stand on the edge of that season, I want to invite you to pause and to reflect, to listen to what the Holy Spirit might be saying to you. I invite you to wonder how you connect with God. How do you connect with God? Doing, go un doing godly things in ungodly ways will never give us a, the godly end that we long for. But as we step into a season of rest, as we step into a season of summer and a different uh, schedule, different rhythms for each of us, probably for almost all of us, how will you cultivate a rhythm of work and rest, both of fighting injustice and fighting idolatry? The key, both Nehemiah tells us and John tells us, is pointing ourselves at God's glory living for God's glory. It's a challenge. It's an invitation to something deeper, a new way of being, not identified or, or not, uh, not known as people or, or celebrated as people for what we've done or for what we've accomplished, but rather celebrated for what God is doing in us, what he continues to do in us, both in what, what overflows into our, into our families, into our work, into our school, into our world, but also the work that he continues to do in us as we simply enjoy time with God and with the people that God has given us to love. 
As you think about how you connect with God, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. And we'll ask God to speak some of those words or give us some of those pictures in prayer. So please join me. Father God, this morning, we're challenged as we sang before the sermon that we surrender all to you. God, I wonder this morning if we are also willing to surrender our desire to be seen a certain way or accomplish a certain thing in our world. Are we willing to even give up our desires to succeed? Are we willing to give up our desires to accomplish things so that we might rest in you? Father, you promise in your word that when we abide, we will bear great fruit, but we can't do it in our own strength. So Lord, I ask that you would give us the strength, that you would show us, even in the beginning of this new season, how we might draw near to you, cut back on some of the things we've been doing, and spend more time connected to you and to your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.